Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM, let's create. Hey everyone, before our episode with Michael today, I wanted to give a brief note at the top. Next week, uh, we're going to be doing an episode about the idea of losing things. I know for a show of interviews, that seems like a strange concept. There won't be one person we're interviewing. And I promise next week, with some context, this will all make sense. But I'm mentioning all this because uh, I'm going to tell a story about loss next week. But I'd also like to hear from some of you. The concept is fairly simple. Basically, I want to hear about stories of loss and heartbreak that you have. It could be a relationship ending. It can be uh, an exam paper that you didn't save properly and then couldn't turn in on time. It could be the loss of a family member. It can be as grand or as trivial as you want it to be. Regardless, I'm excited to hear stories which you can send to uh, a voicemail we have set up at 630-207-1528 or you can send them via email at talkeasypod at gmail.com. So send those in this week, and there's a good chance you'll hear your voice on this show. Now, back to our scheduled program with Michael Imperioli. I want to start with this. The book is very much about coming of age, a young man and his childhood viewed often through the lens of his mother. In the book, they're in Queens, correct? And they start in they Queens. They start in Queens and then they move to, to Manhattan. Yes. You grew up in Mount Vernon. Yeah. I want to hear just off the bat, where are the parallels, if there are parallels between your upbringing and, yeah, yeah. and this one? All the events in the book are fictitious. 
all all the 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 narrative, the stories and the plot lines is all fictitious. I grew up in Mount Vernon, which is the first city above New York that's in Westchester. So the border of Mount Vernon borders the Bronx. If you take the two subway to the last stop on the Bronx, you can you walk into Mount Vernon. But where I grew up, you know, I, I grew up there in the 70s. Even though you're very close to the city, you're also very far away mm. from it. Especially then, I think in our modern times, you know, um, we're not as separate. You know, we, 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 our communication is so different and what we're aware of is so different culturally. But Right, because there's, there's that great line in the book where he says, um, we have gone to Manhattan but don't make a mistake, like, we don't go there. We right. go there on, like, holidays right. or someone is in town. Exactly. Is that the relationship you had to Manhattan? Yeah, as a boy, yeah. And then as a teenager, when I was 17, I started taking acting classes in the city. Mm. And Your dad was also uh, an actor. My and, dad was a bus driver. And, and then, bus driver. Yeah, when he was, I guess, around 40, he started doing community theater. Mm-hmm which I, I wasn't acting then. I was like 14, which I always found very courageous. And he wound up doing, <laughs> he wound up doing some stuff in New York, like uh, at La Mama. And he did, I started producing theater when, in my uh, early 20s. And the first play I produced, he had a small role in. He had a role in a movie that I directed. But yeah, he, I, I thought it was very courageous to step on a stage in middle age, yeah. being a bus driver, and just out of the love of wanting to uh, perform. It, this may be really dumb, and tell me if it is, but when I read that this morning, that your father was a bus driver, my first thought was like, oh, it's like a Bronx tale. And I know that's ridiculous and absurd, but that was my first concept of what that childhood would look like, I imagine your childhood didn't look like that. Yeah, there wasn't like gangsters in my neighborhood. Right. That, well, I, it, was, it was a lot more, um, Mount Vernon was not a city quite, and not a suburb. It was kind of in between. Yeah. Was it like a Bronx town? I mean, my dad drove a bus in the Bronx. I mean, it wasn't, um, it, 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 it wasn't like those high stakes where the mob is trying to influence the sun mm-hmm. and stuff. It was much more just kind of normal. What was your relationship to him? My dad, you know... I thank God I still have him, and uh, he's the best. He was the best dad. He was very much present in our lives, my brother and I. He was a good provider. He worked really hard. Mm. He drove a bus in the South Bronx during a, the early, mid, late, and early 80s, up until like 2000, times when it was very dangerous, right? very, very dangerous. And... um worked his ass off to provide for us and was, you know, is a great guy. I think the best. I don't know if, I mean, he's my model to be a dad. I don't think there could be a better one. Mm. I mean, the character in the book has an absentee dad who <laughs> yeah. was a bad guy, was a gambler and a womanizer, which my dad was never. Truly um, the opposite of what truly it sounds the, like. My dad is a, a, one of the best human beings. And my mom, too, as well. Just they were very loving, supportive, hardworking people and still are. Mm. So where do you find your footing in high school? You go to high school in Mount Vernon? I didn't. We actually wound up, we moved, I think in 77 yeah, you when I was Brewster, 11. Right? Yeah, and I went to middle school and high school in Brewster. But the house where I grew up in, in Mount Vernon, was owned by my grandparents, and they lived there. And so 
I never really left because, like, on weekends a lot, and in the summer I'd always go back and、mm-hmm. hang out with the friends that I grew up. So I never really left those friends. I did make friends and have a life in Brewster, but I always had one foot there. And then when I finished high school, I moved back to Mount Vernon and would take the train in to start my, you know, acting. Right. So you you went to the Stella Adler Conservatory. I went to Stella very very briefly. I studied with her very briefly, but I went to.、Uh, Lee Strasberg Institute was really where I focused, and then、uh, two years into that,、oh, I, me- I met a teacher who was originally from there in the actor studio named Elaine Aiken, and she became really my mentor, and、mm. I studied with her for a while. What do they teach you that you still think about now when acting? They're really what I was taught was, I mean, what Elaine taught us more than anything was that there's an art to acting. And I didn't go to college, so she said to me, "You know, you don't have to go to college, but you do have to educate yourself about art." And she took me and remembered me and Johnny Ventimiglia, who also was on Sopranos. He played Artie, the chef. Johnny and I met at, when I was seventeen in acting school. I go way back with him, and、uh, she took us to the museum, the Met, to look at、um, touring collection of the Hermitage. But she instilled a sense of you know respect for the craft and, and and art. But a lot of the training that kind of Lee Strasberg actor studio thing was exercises in imagination, concentration, and using directing your will towards these you know making these imaginary circumstances real and things like that. Imaginary circumstances real, right? Because when you're acting, right, you you.、Uh, Say you all right on a very simple level. You're it's ninety degrees and we're in Los Angeles and you're you're doing a shot and you're supposed to be cold. Okay, you're not cold. So wait, <laughs> do you pretend and shake and do it, or do you know what what what? Where do you focus your attention to create this sense of being cold?、Mm. I mean, that's on a very physical, right? Not emotional level, but did it make sense to you fairly early on out of high school that this path was something that you could do? I think a lot of people who go into acting very young, well, probably very old too, have to have a real delusional sense of their talent. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think your dad had that?、Uh, well, I, I don't think it was that delusional because if it wasn't, he'd he would have quit his stable job and just said, "I'm going to be an actor and start doing <laughs> off Broadway plays, and we'd have to starve and stuff like that." So、um, that would have been a different childhood. Yeah, I mean, to think that you're going to be an actor who's successful and have a career and make a living at it—it's so hard to start a career and get break in. I didn't know a soul in the business or in the acting world or anything like that, and it's it's very, very, very daunting. So you have to really have an unshakable sense of you know confidence that you can do this, and that you you know the reality is there's a lot, a lot of talented people. And、uh, it's a lot of competition, so I think that delusion. I mean, has to. I don't mean delusion in terms of its faults, but putting that much faith into something that may not work out is that's a big leap of faith. Where do you think your own faith for yourself came from?、Uh, probably that I had really, you know, parents who always said you could do anything you set your mind to, and that you have, you know. That you're, you know, you're talented, and that you know you you should do you should follow your heart and your dreams and that kind of thing. And they they, they were very much about that. I、mm. think that's pretty important. Right.、I、was lucky. Were you a teenager that if someone said you could not do something, 
you'd figure out a way to do it? You know, I was a pretty, you know, before, I was pretty kind of in high school very much into like sports and, you know, studies and stuff like that. I mean, I wasn't very, I don't think I was a very rebellious Mm. kid in high school and I didn't really want to give my parents trouble, you know. I mean, you know, the normal teenager, you know. They're your parents, and you know they bought, they annoy you, you know. Just, well, you're dealing with this now. You've dealt with it for about. I've dealt with it for you know twenty, 20 something years. years. Yeah. yeah, I have a twenty-seven year old, so I've dealt with it for a long time. But uh, you know, um, I was kind of biding my time in a way because I knew there was something about high school that's I felt very restrictive. But even though I enjoyed it, I had good friends, and I. I, I did enjoy it in some level, but I was really kind of waiting to be, you know. Right. The person you wanted to be. Yeah. And I have that kind of, you know, to the excitement of, you know, especially when you start thinking about, you know, something in the, uh, something artistic, you know, and creative fields and what that could be and what that could bring you. That was very exciting to me. You know, to the outside world, looking at your filmography, it feels like you became the thing you're describing, which is a working actor. That's what you wanted to do. Right. It seemed like it happened fairly quickly. I mean, I don't want to, am I I wrong in making that judgment? Well, you know, in some ways, yes. I mean, at the time it didn't seem so. I mean, I (laughs) I started studying acting at 17, right? And right when I started, I figured I'd go to class, I'd go to school for two or three months, get a job on TV (laughs) and be a star and make a lot of money. And tried to get jobs, which meant at that time you would make you'd make the rounds, which I don't think I think you get arrested if you do that today. But basically, you'd walk into agents' offices and hand them a picture. I mean, now you can't even get through the lobby. No. There's no, but th- you do that, and then there was the trade newspapers backstage and uh, whatever the other one was called, show business, and the newspapers would have auditions for off Broadway plays, sometimes for Broadway plays, for student films, for short films, sometimes for features. And you'd go, you'd go online all day long and wait to audition for an off-off-Broadway play. I mean, you'd, that would be your Saturday, standing online with 500 people waiting to get a part in a play that didn't pay. I tried for, and four years of that till I got an off-Broadway play, which didn't pay. I got the lead in the play and I got fired after opening weekend. <laughs> Why? Because I didn't know how to follow direction. I was, you know... Um, I didn't really like the director. I didn't really like what he was telling me. And I, I had no sense of, um, when you act in class, right, you don't really have to make concessions, well, in the type of acting that I studied, you don't have to really make concessions to any sense of theatricality, like that you're in a theater that you have to be loud. You have to, people have to hear you in the back row, but you know, you're not really working necessarily the way we, we trained. We didn't really work that way. Everything was very, internal and intimate and i didn't know how to take his direction and you know he was right i think i really wasn't seasoned enough it was very crushing and really uh, really hurt really hurt but it was a good lesson so that was four years in now i'm 21 and then i got a student i was working with had an audition for an agent so we did our scene from acting class and the agent liked both of us and i got a part I think it was an extra part in a movie called Lean on Me mm-hmm. with Morgan Freeman that John Albertson, who directed, Rocky directed. He played a character named George. Yeah. At first there was no character and then they needed uh, this character. They wrote this character, George, in. And uh, he made me do a monologue 
in the cafeteria on lunch break, and you know, there was like 500 kids eating their lunch, and I had to do a monologue for the director. And they gave me this one line, which is, hey, I'm going to be a star. So now this is the first time ever in front of a camera. Even though I'd been studying acting for five years, we do the take, you know, a bunch of people have lines. I have this line, hey, I'm going to be a star. And I mumble it because I'm so nervous, so petrified, <laughs> uh, feeling so insecure. I mumble a figure. If I mumble, maybe they won't notice me or something. He cuts, he comes over, he gives direction to all the actors. He comes to me, he goes, you with that line, if you don't give me something, you're out of here. And I, you know, the line is cut, but you do see me uh, in the movie on stage getting thrown out of the school. But um, So did you try to do the line again? Yeah, I think I did it again. Maybe I did it better. I, I, I was so terrified. You know, this camera, this eye just staring at you. I'd never really had experience with that. But I got my SAG card and... Um, I did two other little parts in movies that went a little better. And then the year after that, I got Goodfellas. So, yeah. so that's now I'm 23. So that's six years in. I ma started making a living at 25 after about eight years. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's relatively fast. I I'd guess. say that's relatively fast. It didn't feel like it was fast when I was going through it, though. Right. You no, know, it felt like it was never going to happen. And but looking back at it 30 years later, yeah. it feels uh, quick. Yeah. The Goodfellas part, I don't want to gloss over that. You know, looking at the 90s, there's so many things you're in that are, to me, as, a, as a, someone who was born in the 90s, landmark pieces of cinema mm. that, that came from that time. And it starts with Goodfellas. I, how do you even get into that? Uh, well, like I said, I had gotten an agent who was sending me out, and um, I met Juliet Taylor, uh, Ellen Lewis, who were the casting directors for Marty. Scorsese, and I auditioned for them. Funny enough, all the actors were reading Joe Pesci's role in the audition. I forget which scene, but when I, I had read the book, so I thought I was auditioning for that part because oh. that was the scene. <laughs> so, so they called me and said, uh, he's really good. We want um, him to meet Martin Scorsese. So I went in, and I knew that he liked improvisation from just you know, researching him or whatever. So I remember doing a lot of improv in the scene and I guess he liked it and then he, he got hi he hired me. What? What? Where's my fucking drink? I asked you for a drink. You wanted a drink? I just asked you for a fucking drink. No, I thought I thought you said that you are right, Spider. No, 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 no. What do you got me on a fucking pain on mind list, kid? No, is that, no I heard... I thought I heard someone say some spider spider. I spider, thought, I thought it was Henry. You know you're a fucking mumbling, stuttering little fuck. You know that? No, I thought you said it was. I was all right, spider. So you, no, you ain't all right, spider. You got a lot of fucking problems. No, I thought you said you were all right, spider. I'm, I am all right. You ain't all right, you little fucking prick. I thought I thought I am. I tell you, you've been doing this all fucking night to me, you motherfucker. You want a drink now? Okay, I'll bring it. For yeah, you. Oh, give me a fucking drink. Move it, you little prick. You walk like fucking stepping fetch your pants. Everybody else, you'll fucking run. Run for me, you prick. Dance, dance the fucking drink back here. Hello, prick. Hey, what's that movie that Bogart made? Which one? The one where he played a cowboy. Only the oh, one. The, the Oklahoma Kid. Shane. Oklahoma Kid. Shane, Oklahoma kid, that's me. I'm the Oklahoma kid. You fucking oh, barbecue. Dance, dance, Yahoo, you motherfucker. Come on. Come on, you motherfucker. Now he's moving. He's making 
Tommy. Harry, what yeah, happened? He got him in the foot, foot. Tommy. He's hey, fucking what's doctor. Uh, All right, so he got shot in the uh, foot. What is it? A uh, big fucking deal? Vito, uh, Vito, get a towel. On set, are you equally nervous from Lean on Me? No, strangely enough, he could, because of because of the the difference was the director, um, the John Alvinson didn't really, you know, pay much attention to me. Whereas Marty was very very, he came into, I think they brought me into his trailer the day I got there, and he said, if you need me, if you want to talk about anything, discuss anything, you know, I want you to, you know, he made me feel like I belong there, and uh, to the point where I said to the uh, because he said to me, treat the actors, the only thing I'll say is treat the actors on and off camera as the character. That made me relax because now I didn't have to be myself. Mm-hmm. So I could be this guy who's trying to help them, you know, serve them at the card game. <laughs> so when they came in to rehearse, I went up to De Niro and I said, Jimmy, what do you want to drink? And he just kind of looked up, you know, how he does, <laughs> squinting at me kind of. And then he went, a uh, shot of scotch and a and a glass of water. And I went, and I told the props guy that I wanted to reset the props, the glasses and the cigarettes <laughs> after every take, not knowing what actually kind of what a big deal that is. After I didn't have much experience, but, and they let me do that. The, <laughs> they let me reset the bar. So when I'd make a drink, I'd be facing the table instead of having my back turned. I mean, that you know, they didn't know who the hell I was. This yeah. is, you know, one of the best directors in the world giving me that much freedom and, and having that much confidence in me. I, it was really, really uh, amazing of him. I think that's a lot of what makes him great. You know? Yeah. I, I just, I would love to know how you felt after your first day on set there. Like, you go home that night. What's going through your head? Well, I mean, listen, you got to remember, I'm an Italian-American kid from New York who's Want to be an actor, so all of a sudden, this is like, you know, truly a dream. Going true. from the minor leagues to playing in the World Series with the Yankees, you yeah. know, that's really what it was like. <laughs> it was that equivalent, and you know, you you know, they're giving you, they're letting you bat, you know, in the lineup, and you know, play shortstop or something. So, um, but they really, they were all very kind. So was Pesci and Ray Liotta and and De Niro. They they were very generous and. You know, they didn't make me feel like I was someone without a lot of experience who was young. They made me feel like an actor and mm. wanted me to act. And the character of Spider is so, I mean, that's a pivotal scene in the movie. It is. I mean, I didn't know that making it. I had no <laughs> idea what it was going to be. Uh, yeah, when I started playing, the, when we started rehearsing, I played him a lot more like a wise guy, you know? And um, Marty took me aside and said, I think this guy might be a little slow which was a great direction. And then I, and then, so I had him kind of stuttering and stammering. That's where that came out of that direction he gave me. Yeah, a little slow. But the, all that stuff was improvised, except for the line, why don't you go fuck yourself? Everything else was improvised and was different every take. Mm. What did uh, Pesci and De Niro say on, on the day of? Do you mean to me as a person? Yeah. I mean, they were just very complimentary and, you know, uh, respectful and kind. And- oh, so they weren't being their characters? Not when we were done working. I mean, it wasn't like he was abusing me all day long. <laughs> no, no. They, they, you know, they. 
I think what Marty didn't want was me being this young actor who's going to, so what was it like doing Taxi Driver, Bob? I mean, did you really not sleep for five days and, yeah. you know, drink coffee, you know, all day? You know what I mean? I mean, that's, I, it's more, I think, more to prevent that, which I never would have done anyway, but, right. you know. That, that sounds like the most uh, terrifying thing to do to someone. Yeah. Just to be like, oh, you know the thing that is maybe your best thing ever? Can we just talk about that? <laughs> um, right, but you don't want to do that on a set when he's trying to oh, focus on his role. You know what I mean? It's not a good I'm move. sure he probably would have been nice talking about it, but it's, you know, he's... What I noticed about De Niro is that he was very much about conserving his energy. Like, he wouldn't really... It's, you know, in between takes, he'd leave. Because being on a set and there's lights and there's all this, you know, they're always moving stuff around. It sops up a lot of your energy, you know? And you shoot long hours and you want that energy to be those little bursts when the camera's rolling, which is not very often. Right. And he, to me, it seemed like he was all about conserving energy, not not just engaging in tons of small talk to just dissipate his energy. Right. Is, so is there no small talk? There is. It's very, it's almost, the attitude's almost like you're not making a movie. You're just kind of, right. you know. Yeah, there is and there's banter, but he, he would he would limit it, you know, and it seemed to me a very intelligent way. Yeah, it's a strange, I just shot my first uh, short that I wrote. and um, Did crew, you act in it as well? No, I directed and wrote it, but I know the, you know, there was 35 people, which is a small crew, but the amount of small talk in between, yeah. it's hard to not do that because you want to make people feel good and encouraged, and yet also... There's a party that really doesn't want to say anything to fucking anyone. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, yeah. that's a tough thing to, to balance. It's a tough thing to balance. And as an actor, you have to gauge how you're going to use your energy. Because, you know, once the camera's rolling, you want to have it all there. You know, you want, you want, that, you, you want to give it as much as you can. And yeah, if you, you, you don't know, want to waste it on small talk. Well, it could, you know, it, it, it could be. You don't want to waste it on anything, you know, making phone call, too many phone calls or being too much engaged in other things. I mean, it, it, listen, it depends what you're doing, what, how much of the scene you have to be there for, you know, what you need from the scene. But there has to be a balance, you know. Sometimes, I know there's, there's times when I can engage with some people and it calms me down and it's fine, but then there's other people who I have to get away from because they're the constant talking of nonsense or things that are annoying <laughs> that you just don't, it's like noise and it affects your focus let's go to 1991 i wanted to dive into malcolm x that set from everything i've read about it everything i know about spike uh it's a big set right i mean there's a lot of talk about like lights moving there's a thousand moving parts it seems but what happened there what happened i mean I i had worked with him on jungle fever and I think Malcolm X was the next movie I did with him. Yeah, that's a little over. It's hard when you come on to a set for a day or two and everybody else has been working for a month or two. Like, you know, it's not easy because they already have a shorthand, they have a relationship, and you're just kind of trying to figure out where you fit in. And <laughs> I just remember walking in the makeup trailer and Denzel was all, was already in the chair getting made up and he was reading one of Malcolm's book of speeches and I don't think I had met him before he's from Mount Vernon as well but uh, he just had a very intense energy around him that was very focused and very 
and I didn't even say a word to him. Right. It wasn't like he, I don't think he was trying to just blow people off. I think it was just, he was very focused on playing that role. Um, I think it was a very important movie, you know, and I think Spike did an amazing job with it. It was a very difficult movie to get made. I mean, they shot in Mecca, <laughs> of all places. You know, I mean, it was, I didn't know that. Yeah, I don't know if it was one of the first or only Western film to, uh, they shot in. I think they shot in the, you know, the holy place there. Oh, you know yeah. where they do the Hajj, or you know, I don't know what that's called. Mm. So Denzel was immediately. Uh, it it appeared that he was focused and uh, in, character, in character in the moment. Yeah, yeah, sure. Have, I'm. I would imagine you'd have to be to do something like that. Have you found that to be true? Amongst uh, great actors? I think it depends. I think it depends on the character. It depends on what you're doing. Everybody has a different a different approach. And uh, everybody's different, gets there different ways. Mm. What happens on Basketball Diaries? Because I want to say that and uh, as a kid, this movie was like very, very important to me. And confusing because I wanted to play basketball in college. And I liked DiCaprio. And I was... The blending of the world between like someone who cares about basketball and then the sort of tragic elements of that story. It it felt like one of the first like adult movies that I saw as a that kid. Your, that maybe that your gener a lot of your generation did. Well, for me it was an important book. Before it was a movie, when I was a teenager, Jim Carroll's book was a very, you know, Maybe in the same way you feel about the movie, the book, I felt about the book. So uh, I was really excited to audition for it because I, um, I loved the book, you know. And, uh, yeah, I remember I had to be, I had to have cancer in that movie. Right. And uh, Leo rescues me from the hospital. I'm dying, basically, I'm his buddy. And he he takes me out and takes me to a peep show, you know, just to... He knows I'm dying and he just wants to give me some last, you know, breath of freedom in life. Yeah, and we shot. We remember we were going through Times Square. It was just when tra Times Square started the transition to, you know, the post-Disney uh, age. Mm. Did your anxiety about acting in front of the camera start to lessen throughout the 90s as you got more experience? Mm, oh, yeah. It, it totally lessens. Now it's... I don't really have any, I mean, I have anxiety for different reasons about different things, but not about being in front of the camera. <laughs> what are uh, they now? It depends on the, you know, the job. Did I, did, I feel, did I sleep enough or am I, you know, am I, do I know what I'm, my lines and not, you know, that, that can, uh, but not being in front of a camera doesn't bother me. Mm. Uh, in that age where you're in your 20s working in movies that I think matter or that are interesting, did you get a... I don't know, a lesson or a piece of wisdom that you've held on to about the business or your craft or something like that? Probably a lot of lessons. Um, Are you a lesson guy? I don't know if I'm a lesson guy. I mean, <laughs> I learned lessons from my dad, which was he had a very, you know, great work ethic. He worked really, really hard and didn't really complain about it, you know. And uh, I think one of the big lessons is, Showing up is big. I mean, and I don't mean that sarcastically. Like, showing up means, you know, being prepared, getting enough rest, not being, you know, out of it, being, you know, knowing the material, being positive, be, you know, that all that stuff, which 
is actually easier said than done and not as easy to maintain over a course of a whole career. But, a lot, you know, it's being a professional, being somebody people like to be around. Because unless you're making them millions and millions of dollars, you know, because then you can behave however you want if you're making studios <laughs> $100 million. Uh, but... You know, people want to work with people that they're gonna that they like. You know that you know it's it's collaboration, and you want it to be pleasant because yeah. you know it's hard work. That seems to be something a lot of people don't um, understand. I think people who are just casual moviegoers don't see the part where a lot of higher ability is based purely on are you okay to be with for fourteen hours? Because we have to sit here for fourteen hours in a day. Yeah, you know? it should be. And uh, and if you're not pleasant. Or reliable, you know. Or, as you said, the outlier, which is unless you make us so much money that we can, you know, withstand the abuse of your shitty personality. (laughs) Yes, then that they will. (laughs) That's that's the truth. That's the lesson you learned early. I, I don't know if I learned it early. I did learn that, though. But you don't strike me as someone who's a pain in the ass. No, I'm not a pain in the ass. Unless it's... I'll be a pain in the ass for... um. I'll I'll fight for creative points if I really believe in it, and if you present a, a good argument, I'll you know that's better than mine. I'll agree. I mean, I'll argue creative ideas mm. and points all day long because I think that's important. And if things are abusive or dangerous, I'll you know then I'll be a pain in the ass. Do people ever have better ideas than your ideas? <laughs> uh, I have one of the great idea minds. Of all time. No, of course. All the time. I, mean, I like yes. the idea of you just not losing an argument. <laughs> no, I'm not like that. Yeah, you no, should. no, no. I want to hear, you know, uh, no, I, I, people have better ideas probably most of the time. Mm-hmm. Unlike our president who always has the best ideas. He's he really... just came up with an idea to have rating systems for movies. Did you hear that? No, I didn't hear that one. Because he was saying that the shootings these teenagers who shoot up schools, a lot of it's through movies and video games, and uh-huh. he thinks they should have a rating system for those things. Oh. I feel like we have a rating system <laughs> for those things. Do you think? But though, I don't want to go into it, but the MPA is also awful in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I I guess so. I don't know much about them. But, what but it's, it, well, it, you know, they're constantly in favor of and give preferential treatment to violence and killing yeah. over sex, I yeah. think. And that may not be just an MPAA thing, but a, an American... Cultural thing? Yeah. Yeah. But the amount of movies that are rated, that are rated originally X, that have sex in them, right. and have to be cut down, and have, you know, as opposed to a movie that's R, and you can have a thousand people getting shot right. up, and that is not grotesque. No. In a lot of ways, though, that whole thing has become a moot point because kids have access to everything now. Oh, my it's God. It's very hard. When I was a kid, TV was just, you know, NBC, ABC, PBS, and, you know. Right. And, uh, oh, there wasn't a porn channel? No, not when I was a kid. And then you'd go to the movies, and, you know, if you snuck into an R movie, it was a big deal. But now, I mean, kids have smartphones. They could see, you know, you could, they could just tune into porn. Yeah. You know, they don't have to be 18. I mean, you're supposed to be, but who's going to stop them? Most parents don't know how to put a block. I mean, most parents don't even know how to. I can't barely take a photo with my phone. Right. Kids know everything. Everything. So it's the rating system kind of has become almost. Doesn't matter. I don't know. It's really tough. To, They've it's seen really tough. the worst. And that's, They've seen that's, the worst. That's, um, I think, unfortunate for them, for, for kids. You think for kids? Yeah. 
Do you think kids watch Taxi Driver now and are like, I don't understand what kind of picture he's seeing in a theater. What is he doing in there? I, that's a good question. I mean, actually, that there were theaters where you could see porn, and sometimes people would take dates and stuff like that. Yeah. People yeah. Would, would jerk off in a theater. All right. That happened. And then get arrested like Pee Wee Herman. And everyone was just like Pee Wee Herman. Um, I guess they would do that, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, w- I wonder what they think. I uh, wonder. It's know. very... Um, it's bizarre to me. It's bizarre. It's become a much more intimate thing now than it was back then. You got married around this time in 1996, right? I did, yeah. And when did you have a kid? My daughter was uh, five. She's my stepdaughter. She was my from uh, my wife's first marriage. Okay, so you, I was a kid. I had I was a dad right away. I was I had a five year old. She was five. How did you like being a father at that age? I liked it a lot. I liked it a, a real lot. I mean, she's, uh, you know, was a great kid and is a great woman now. And, um, you know, it's the beginning of a new stage in your life when you're not the uh, center of it, all the attention anymore. You know, you have someone else who demands, you know, to be the center of attention. And that's that's a good thing. Mm. That didn't bother you? No, no, that didn't bother me. I mean, I think if I... I was re- I was thirty, so I was ready for that. I wasn't. I mean, if I, if it was when I was twenty, I wouldn't have been, or twenty five, not not ready for it. Right. There's something I find very interesting, and I guess I hope you don't think I'm skeptical, but I'm a little skeptical, but only because I come from a long line of uh, divorces in my family. That uh, I find it very impressive that you've managed marriage for over 20 years yeah and i always say in showbiz years that's like 50 that's like yeah. 100 300 yeah. i'm gonna give yeah. you it's i don't even know how to do the. <laughs> i don't know the times table yeah right but it's very impressive yeah. how does that work no well um <laughs> my wife is great and amazing and probably the smartest person i know and uh we love each other a lot so we we've made it work yeah you know and uh you have to show up for the other person and you have to, you know, it has to be a partnership and and you have to listen to each other and, you know, take each other's side. Mm. The way you're describing this is, is similar to how you describe acting, which is that a lot of it is showing up and being yeah. present. I mean, love is, a, you know, you're showing up in a very different, but much more emotional way, obviously, in a much more, com- on a much bigger level and much more complete way. But yeah, you know, it's, you you only have, you have to devote your attention to it and, you you, you know, give yourself to it. And uh, I think you have to make that more important than anything else, <laughs> which before I was married, I think work or art was more important than anything else, but I don't believe that anymore. No. No, not at all. It's funny, when I think about showing up, I know it's something I actively try to do, but the only things I can think of are the times where I did not show up, and (laughs) it's just a bizarre thing that the good memories, all the things that you do on a routine basis, they go by the wayside, (laughs) and the only things I can remember are like, oh, geez, I didn't... But that's good because it keeps you on your toes, right? Yeah. You don't get complacent. And look, but you do show up. You you have a show. You do pod. You do uh, movies. I mean, that's not. You're not. It's something. You're, you're doing it. When when have you not showed up? When have I not showed up? <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll do. I'll go first. Three days ago it was my brother's birthday. Didn't call him. Forgot didn't to call, call him. him. Notice two days later. 
and then I called him. And uh, that's not good. I mean, that's, I should be. No, but we all make mistakes, you know. I mean, you know, we all make mistakes. We're mm-hmm. human beings, right? And that, that happens. I mean, I can't think, uh, you know, I don't have an example that's, I mean, I'm, there's tons of them, I'm sure. You, you should ask the people close to me. They'll tell you right away. Great. We'll get them on the show next. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. The amount of times you've been asked about The Sopranos is why I haven't brought it up. I'm reluctant to even talk about it because I, I feel like I could be wrong, but are you sick of talking about it at this point? No, you don't have to not don't not bring it up on my account because it's something I'm very proud of. Okay, and, uh, I understand why people want to talk about it. it. Was you know it was a great show and an important one. Mm. You know? What is it? Do I look like a pussy to you? No, I'm serious. Be honest. I won't get mad. No, no. So why the fuck would you give me a hard time and talk to me like I'm nothing to worry about? I, I'm, I'm sorry. Get a pastry box. Move it! That's better. Now fill it with cannoli, schwiedel, and napoleons. Give me the box. Come on. Next time you see my face, show some respect. I will. <laughs> you motherfucker! You shot my foot! It happens. Ah, oh, you fucking asshole! <laughs> What are your feelings about it now, uh, a decade removed from doing it? Well, I'm really proud of the work we did. I think I don't really watch it. I don't go back and watch my stuff, and I don't even watch the stuff I do now. I mean, I used to watch it like right after I did it, and I don't really look at it anymore. It's just I don't I don't find it productive or helpful to watch myself, but. My son, my youngest son started watching it. I remember watching some of an episode with him and and I was like, oh yeah, this is why this was, it's good. I mean, it's really well written (laughs) and it's well, the the actors, the depth of, you know, the depth of the cast and the the bench depth of that show is, you know, so many good performances and uh, I'm very proud of it, you know, and I think it's... um, if there's anything that I was going to be known most for, I'm really glad it's that. Mm-hmm. It has a place in pop culture that I don't even know. Can television shows still do that? Like Game of Thrones maybe is the best example of a show that goes beyond a yeah. show. Like it's a term. Right. It feels like, it feels like a piece right. of the culture in such a distinct way. It's and, a little harder now because there's so much more content that way you know people were still when it was on people would still get together on sundays at nine to watch the show my family would do that yeah and then that's not happening as much because of the way we view stuff so it's not it's not as in the moment that way but yeah i'm sure it it does happen and people that's a real shame though that people don't um that that sort of familial aspect to it we're literally you know on sunday I'd have family come over and it would be like seven of us watching three different shows for three hours. <laughs> yeah. And and that doesn't happen anymore. No, I know. It's uh, When I was a kid, once a year, they would have The Wizard of Oz on television, usually like around my birthday in the spring on like CBS or something with commercials and everything. And when I was little, it was such a big deal because that, you know, that still may be my favorite movie of all time, but... 
there's something about you know oh, it's going to be on you get ready for it and you come inside and it, it was it was a big event to watch that movie you know uh, <laughs> that doesn't go on you know that kind of i mean still when a movie's released in the theaters and it's you know has a great buzz and you want to go see it that, that, we have it there i think more than anything yeah around the time sopranos is ramping up in the late 90s and then through the 2000s it is the biggest role in your life i think is that fair to say yeah and also in that time you have these kids mm -hmm. like you have young kids mm -hmm. how are you balancing that I mean, I found ways after The Sopranos, a lot, a lot of, I brought a lot of things into my life and my family did as well to, you know, one was martial arts, which I, we started as a family in like 2002. And one was meditation and Buddhism to kind of, you know, to be able to uh, deal with the world and deal with ourselves and our mind and body, you know, be some kind of, you know, you know, mental, spiritual, physical health. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, those were, those are very helpful things. Is the rest of your family as uh, mentally healthy as you appear to be? Ah, uh, I, I, you know, appearances can be very deceiving, my <laughs> friend. Yeah, you know, we're all, we're, listen, you do what you can. You want to, you know, you want to be as happy as you can. You know, we all have, you go through t difficult times and you go through problems and you, you know, find ways to deal with it. Um, you know, uh, artistic types, you know, can get sidelined by a lot of things, you know, and uh, I think having a long career is not very easy. I mean, a lot of times people, you know, they hit something big and then you never hear from them again. But being able to maintain you know, a career in anything artistic over a long period of time is very hard. So, and as you get older, you know, you don't have the same amount of energy you did as a young person and you can't, you know, you you have to keep the tank filled, you know, to, and you have to find ways to do that. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, my, my family are pretty, you know, they're together people and, they, you know, we all try to do our best, you know. Years removed, you talk about how you've taken away the idea of a, of a strong work ethic from your father. As your kids get older, what do you think they'll think about when they think about you? I, I think that they see that um, when I want to do something, I'll put the work in and do it. You know, like writing a book, which I, I hadn't, I had not done before, but over a two year span while I was writing it, they knew I was writing a book and, you know, so you'd have good days and bad days. I didn't know where it was going. I didn't know if I was going to get published. I didn't have a publisher at the time while I was writing it. Who the hell knows if I'm going to finish it. And then they see <laughs> the, the box comes in the mail with 20 books that now we've published. So they grew up to, my wife and I built a theater in 2003 where we produced off-Broadway plays, new plays. Right. That, you know, it was all about the playwright and, and producing their plays. My wife built the theater with her father, and, my, and she, we were artistic directors, Victoria and I. So they grew up around that, too, and saw that, you know, we didn't, we didn't really have a company, but it was a company by default because there were so many artists that we had worked with over the years that naturally a lot of them gravitated towards our productions. But they saw that value of collaboration and friendship, you know, combined with collaboration and hard work and uh, dedication, you know. Mm. The way you describe art and collaboration is um, 
and I've said this already about just you, but it's, it seems productive and good and healthy. And it's interesting hearing it from you because a lot of the people I know here in Los Angeles, they describe this as something that's much messier and uh, complicated and ripe with ego. And it's all it sounds when people say about their process, it's all a lot more of a pain of the ass. Yeah. Well, it is all those things too, but we built the theater in 2003. At that point I was, you know, third, whatever, what is that? 15 years ago. So I'm in my mid thirties. I started producing plays and formed 20. a company with friends in my early twenties. So I'd done it, you know, and we had done these things and now there's a certain maturity. Some of the people that I reached out to, to work with, I know their work and I know what they're about. And, um, what was good about the theater was that the, it was about finding new plays. So we would tailor the production to the play, find the right director. It wasn't like, let's find a good part for so-and-so or for me or for anybody. We'd tailor it to the, to the play. So that kind of, you're, you're working something for something bigger than yourself uh -huh. you know, and ha ha having that shared goal. But collaboration is very hard and it is very messy. I mean, I've... One of the reasons why I started writing a book was because I didn't want to collaborate with anybody. <laughs> you know, I had gone through a couple of years of scripts and pilots that I had written that had gone to a certain place and then didn't go for various reasons, either with people I was writing with or with the studio or the network or things like that. I was like, I just want to do something that is it is it in essence. It doesn't have to go through another yeah. phase or right. level, besides getting a publisher, which right. I was very lucky which I found at Akashic Books, who are amazing uh, press. They're great. but um, You wanted to do something that did not require mostly on other people. Well, and by other people who had to... It wasn't even so much the collaborative thing that bothered me. It was like kind of like the chain of command and the powers that be and having to dance around those things. I mean, collaboration, I'm, I, I, pretty, I love, you know, and... I, and uh, I like working with other artists. It's difficult when you're starting to go up against executives and who are making want to make decisions and things that you don't necessarily agree with and for your thing to get made. Because a screenplay or a teleplay, it's not a work of art unto itself. It's a map or a blueprint. You know, once you make the thing, you throw the you use the screenplay as, you know, wallpaper or yeah. toilet paper or whatever, basically. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not a work of art unto itself. It can be very artistic and beautiful and poetic and well written, yeah. but it's a map. It's a blueprint, right? It's a schematic for the end product. Whereas a book is in essence itself, right? Yeah. That's the thing about scripts that is uh, truly mystifying that I've learned. Is that it? It really, uh, it's the final product is almost nothing like the script you had written, right? And it and it can't be, right? It can, it can't be. Like think of like a recipe in a cookbook. It's you know it's it's the same recipe, but you have ten people make it. It's going to take taste ten different ways, even if they follow it to the letter. Yeah, because they're going to they're going to be in different parts of the world and use a different tomato or use a different type of this and too much of that. You know, mm. so. Yeah, it is like that, and 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 why I wanted to write a book because I, uh, I I also need to be creative all the time. So when I'm not, I have to. I read a lot of books. I mean, that's really my one of my great loves is 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 fiction, particularly literature. And uh, over you know the years leading up to that, I specifically started reading with the eye of writing something. I mean, I'd written a lot of prose that never went anywhere. I didn't finish any of books that 
with garbage, you know. Mm. As a creative person, you've done music, you've written a book, you have acted, you have directed theater. Yeah. Um, you've written a screenplay. We didn't even talk about Summer of Sam, which is so I thought, you know, it's a pivotal thing I imagine in your life. The point is, you've done all these things. What do you wish you could tell some younger version of yourself, but also just a young person who's trying to be creative in their 20s? What's something you know now that you wish you knew then? I think you just have to follow your, your passions. I mean, see, when, I, when I started studying acting, I was also around a lot of artists. I mean, it was the early 80s in New York. I was spending a lot of time in the East Village with a lot, with a lot of really creative people who were some who were studying acting, but you know, the, the punk movement and the post-punk era in New York, there was a lot of people who were do you know, who were playing in like Basquiat played in a band with Vincent Gallo, who was a painter at the time who became a filmmaker and an actor. They were roommates. <laughs> you know, it's like the the first drummer in Sonic Youth was Richard Edson, who became an act was in Jim Jarmusch's movie, yeah. became an actor. John Lurie, who was a musician, acted in Jarmusch. You know, there was a community. Yeah, and people did were experimenting with different forms and different things. Like the whole performance art thing came, I think, from a combination of you know off off Broadway theater and punk punk rock. You know, so it wasn't like I became famous and I said now I'm going to do this. And I, this is what I always did. I mean, I started writing about the same time I started acting. I started playing music at the same time, producing theater and directing theater. I did all this from the beginning. It's not like. I, be, I became a TV star, and now I decided I'm going to start doing this shit. Although people like to paint you as that and like to think your ego is so huge. Now that you're famous, you're going to do this and do that. These have all been creative outlets of mine from the beginning. And uh, acting was the thing that I got the most success right away at and something that I still do and something that also paid the bills because the theater was built. I went and did a kind of a big Hollywood movie and took that money and we built the theater, which was a nonprofit deal that didn't make money. You know, so there's always like this uh, robbing from the rich and yeah. giving to the poor aspect of it as well. Um, I, I've gone back and forth through, you know, all different types of projects, but there's always that uh, indie, you know, aesthetic and vibe and energy that I, I always want to be in touch with. Right. I mean, your father was a bus driver who uh, at 40, I think you said. He was, yeah, I was 14, so he was, yeah, 40, I think. He wanted to become an actor. You are his son, and you became an actor. Probably in a way that he could only dream of. Is he proud of you? Oh, God, yeah. He has every, like, newspaper clipping, you know, from way, way, way <laughs> back. Yeah, he has boxes of magazine articles, souvenirs and props and things like memorabilia, you know, all. He has my whole uh, archive. Yeah. Are you proud of yourself? Uh, you know, uh, yes. I mean, but, the, you know, that's a very transient thing, you know. And the, 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 uh, I don't buy that answer at all. I, I don't could know. Feel, I, I like, feel I'm that. proud of this book because I felt like I did what I wanted to do with it. I mean, I didn't know where it was going to go. I didn't know I was going to finish it and... You know what it is at the end. Uh, what it's you know when the last time I actually read through it, I just recorded the audio book for it. 
So I read it in three days out loud. And I'm just really happy with it. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of things that went into it from a lot of different directions, I think, in, 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 in my life. So uh, it's still a lot I want to do. So, uh, you know, I'm restless about those things. And, you know, after you turn 50, you start to really realize your mortality and that there's, you know, you, I've, I've lost some friends. I mean, Jim Gandolfini's death was a, a big shock and he was, I'm going to be 52 this month. He died at 52, you know, and it was like, okay, we're not guaranteed to be here for, you know, any longer than we are. So you better be productive and be happy and be a good person, I guess. Mm. Is that something you're worried about? I, I don't know. I, I can't say I'm worried about, but I think, I think it's very good to remember that you, you know, your time here is limited. So make, you know, make it, count i mean be happy and you know make other people happy and be productive if you want to be productive and you know get off your ass <laughs> <laughs> i think you've made a count don't you think uh yeah i mean listen if if if, if this was it that you know i'd be, be proud of all that but uh you know we still got stuff to do all right well michael i hope you do uh more and then you can come back at some point. Thank you very much. It was really fun talking to you. Thank you so much. I enjoyed I, it. I Special thanks this week to Alex, Elise, and Chelsea at 42 West for arranging today's episode of the show. If you want to check out Michael's book, The Perfume Burned His Eyes, you can do so at pretty much any bookstore or Amazon or wherever the hell you get your books these days. It is probably there and absolutely worth the reading. If you want more of Michael's work, then you should probably, uh, you know, watch The Sopranos or summer of sam or goodfellas or lucifer or dice or there's a lot of tv shows he's been on there's a lot of movies he's been on he was really good in californication we didn't talk about that but he was good in that show anyway to find out more about michael you can do so at our website at www.talkeasypod.com as i mentioned at the top next week we're going to be doing an episode that is vastly different from the kind of uh, interviews we have here every week. I promise we'll go back to the interviews after next week. But next week, we want to do a short piece about the idea of loss, both of objects and of people, events, of memories, anything that has created some amount of pain and heartbreak in you is something we want to hear. So please, we're looking forward to your stories and uh, be sure to leave those either at uh, my email, which is talkeasypod at gmail.com, or leave me a voicemail at uh, 630-207-1528. If you do that, there's a good chance uh, your story can be on the show. As always, Talk Easy is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Valerie Attenhofer, 
The show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week with uh, stories from you. Till then. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.